Friends, how are you? It's Kel Spellman here, welcoming you to this very special bonus episode of Call of the Wild. To keep us tidied over until the next episode, we've got some extra bits that didn't make it into our opening episode of my chat with Sir David Attenborough. Now, don't know about you, but I think it's safe to say we could listen to him all day. So, without further ado, here he is. Enjoy. I just landed almost by accident at the BBC in my early 20s. Um, television was in its very early years, and almost everything you did was new. And we had never taken cameras on television to, I don't know, Africa or uh, the Brazil or Borneo or something, or New Guinea. But nobody had actually seen an armadillo before. Nobody had actually seen a sloth moving from trees. Nobody had certainly been underwater before. Mm. People sat there and, and they were intoxicated by the sheer miracle of television, actually. And, and you just put those things and there was the first time they'd seen them. So you were incredibly privileged. The world in the 50s was beginning to open up and it was becoming economically possible to travel quite quickly to Africa. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I put up an idea just out of the blue. I thought, I'd be wonderful to go to Africa. And I had a pal in the London Zoo who was going to collect, on a collecting expedition to collect animals for the zoo. And we put a hatched up a scheme to that I should go with him and make a film about him. Uh, and to my amazement, the bosses and the people said, oh, yeah, well, that's not a bad idea. Is it really expensive? Oh, no, no, you know. <laughs> peanuts. And, and, uh, peanuts, yes, a few hundred pounds is all that's required. And, and, and they let me do it. And I'm sure that I could have done it very, very much better if I'd been more experienced or better or talented or sort of. But we got away with it. I mean, we <laughs> get away with it year after year after year. Would you say that was maybe where the game changed, so to speak, then that first trip to Africa? It was the first time that the BBC had ever used 60mm film right. for a start. And it was the first time that... Um, They'd never commissioned anybody, I think, to, to take a camera. There was a cameraman, dear, a good old pal of mine called Charles Lagos. I put up the idea we should accompany this man going to the London Zoo. And they said, how long will it, the BBC? How long will it take? Ooh, three or four months. <laughs> oh, well, good luck, my dear chap. You know, and I hope to see you at Christmas. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, uh, it, it was that, that kind of organisation at the time. It isn't like that anymore. No. So, David, what are the biggest transformations or is there a key one that you've witnessed since starting out your career to this moment in time within nature? Well, that human beings are all pervasive everywhere, that you can't get across away from human beings anymore, Uh, that there is uh, the oil slicks and bits of plastic floating in the remotest part of the oceans, Um, that, that we have destroyed nature we've been we've been so clever that we've found methods and ways and techniques of actually destroying nature in order to put in what we choose and that we've done it without thought over vast areas of the planet as though the planet belonged only to us and that we were the only other important organism in the place which is not the case Um, and it's not just altruism uh, and saying it's fair that other organisms should have a place on the side. But in fact, we depend on the natural world. Uh, as you've just said about for, for interest of everything that's beautiful and wonderful. But also we depend it for on, on every breath of air we take. 
Um, and on every mouthful of food we eat. And if we damage the natural world, we are damaging ourselves. And we have been doing that without care for, for decades. I would really love to hear kind of any top tips you'd have to impart to our listeners and to young people on what they can do to, to turn things around and, and make that change. Well, I mean, the dangers that, that afflict the natural world now uh, are many. Uh, one of them is that there are so many of us, uh, and we're everywhere, uh, and we are more powerful than we've ever been. Uh, and we should have some regard to how we wield that power uh, and some respect for the natural world with which we share the world. And, of course, you can encourage the natural world in all sorts of places, in all sorts, even in cities. You know, we There are things you can put in a in a window box that will bring you joy, uh, and not just flowers. You can Birds will be coming to your window boxes and so on. Even the small garden can produce lovely things. What signs have you seen and examples that tell us that there is hope? Oh, well, yes. Well, that is how things, how things recover. I mean, I made a film, I don't know how long it is now, must have been 30, 40 years ago, but we went to look at mountain gorillas in Rwanda, and mountain gorillas at that time were close to extinction, and they were being poached and killed, really barbaric. I mean, the people would cut the hands off the mountain gorilla and, and stuff them and turn them into ashtrays. Can you imagine how vile that would be? Um, and there were less than, I think, I think it was about 60 or 70 of them left. The, the wonderful American woman called Diane Fossey, who had habituated these things and had allowed to get us with our cameras to get close to these gorillas because she introduced us to them. Uh, and when we left, she said, you must promise me that you will do something to help the gorillas. And I did my, what I could when I got back in terms of organizing charities and so on. Uh, well, today, there are more mountain gorillas in the world than there were then. We can do it. Yes, it can be done. Do you have a life mantra? Do you have something which you've kind of always stuck to whenever you've been making a decision and, and had the career that you've had? Is there anything you, you live by? No, I, I can't honestly say that there's any mantra or anything else. I, I think I learned that what you had to do was to do what you what interests you, even if it was not all that lucrative, even if it didn't have a promise you some kind of career or something that did, did if it didn't interest you, maybe it's just my moral fiber, which is not as, as good as it should be, <laughs> that I, I didn't, if I wasn't sufficiently strong-minded to do things that I was not interested in day after day after day after day. And I didn't have too many experiences of doing that, but I, but I, there were occasions in which I did, and jobs that I had, that I thought this is not, this is not the way I'm going to spend my life. And then I, so I kept moving on, and uh, eventually uh, stumbled into broadcasting. And the awful thing was that in <laughs> 1952, nobody was much interested in television. Mm. Really, I mean, it was a kind of hold in the corner thing that happened in North London, and uh, it could only be seen. It couldn't be seen as far away as Bristol, <laughs> um, and and uh, 
but but I, I and I I didn't know anything about it either. I, I applied for a job I saw in the in the newspaper for the BBC to, to do sound radio, and I thought, well, anybody can do sound radio. I didn't, I didn't actually say that, but I, I thought that anybody <laughs> could. Um, and and I got turned down. No um, and, and then I got a fortnight later. I got a letter from someone who said, uh, "We're starting a new thing. It's called television, and a lot of people are rude about it. It's uh, we've got it up at Alexander Palace, and we've got two studios there. Would you be in the least interested in seeing whether it was the sort of thing you'd be interested in?" Yeah, yeah, no, for, for true, as they say, that's exactly what they said. And what we'll do, we'll if you if you were interested, we could give you training for six weeks, and then we don't necessarily offer you a job because it might not suit you. Um, but if you do, then we, we will see about it. Wow. So up I went then, and it was intoxicating. I mean, it was a thrill a minute. I mean, and nobody nobody could see you much except in North London. Well, not <laughs> a bit. It was a bit bigger than that, but not much, not much. And of course, it was thrilling. I mean, we're so glad that you did, and the rest is literally <laughs> history, Sir David. Um, finally, um, what would be your your pearl of wisdom to younger people who want to make a difference? The world's in trouble, and they can do something about it, but also that they demand that the politicians who have more power than in single and private individuals should get together and solve it, and, and that it's solvable. Mm-hmm. We know what to do. We know how to do it. All that's left is, is doing it. A massive thank you again to Sir David Attenborough for that brilliant interview. Safe to say it was one of the best experiences of my life and one that I'm going to cherish forever. Definitely one that I won't forget. And it really has galvanised and motivated me to try and learn more, do as much as I can to try and make a difference and make the world a better, more sustainable and greener place. And I do hope you'll join me on this journey as well. So there we have it. That's it for this bonus episode. Our next episode will be out soon, where we'll be focusing on the ocean and how we can reduce the amount of plastic waste that ends up there. Very much looking forward to that. Call of the Wild is a fresh air production for WWF. Subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and you can join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Call of the Wild. The wild is calling, it's time to act.